LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and today we present the first of two sessions recorded at home with Anthony Peake, inspired by his latest book, Cheating the Ferryman, The Revolutionary Science of Life After Death. Is there life after death? This age-old question has plagued humankind from the moment we became self-aware, but do we now have enough evidence to answer it? In this mind-expanding book, Peake reveals an extraordinary model of life after death, one that brings together ideas from ancient philosophy, neuroscience, quantum physics and consciousness studies, and manages to explain a number of seemingly mysterious experiences such as precognition, déjà vu, synchronicity, near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences. The book is a much-awaited follow-up to Peake's internationally best-selling Is There Life After Death? which introduced his revolutionary model. Since then, he has amassed more evidence, using new studies by world-leading researchers, theories from the likes of Stephen Hawking, Carl Jung, and Hugh Everett, together with testimonies of near-death experiences and precognitive experiences, which give everyday clues to our immortality. Cheating the Ferryman presents an astounding model of survival after death that is supported by, rather than in conflict with, our present understanding of how the universe works. Hello and welcome Anthony and thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Absolutely delighted to be chatting to you again Greg. We always have some fascinating discussions. We do and it's been a while. I think it was the uh, um, Hidden Universe, would have been the last, your last book that came out that we spoke about these, these matters. It is indeed. And in fact, when I was looking at the information, I think I've appeared more times on your show than any other show I've done. You have. In fact, you're one of the first. The podcast started back in 2012. In fact, recently celebrated 10th anniversary on uh, April 2022. And yeah, your book at the time, um, The Labyrinth of Time, was the uh, yeah, well, absolutely one of the first shows in the first half dozen, I believe. So that's quite a remarkable track record. Um, and all those previous shows, by the way, will be linked up on the interview page today so with people that this would be easy links for them to jump through and listen back to everything we've recorded over the years. Um, today I'm going to be talking about your brand new book that's entitled Cheating the Ferryman, The Revolutionary Science of Life After Death. Um, it's worth mentioning that um, not only are we kind of celebrating 10 years of you and I talking intermittently um, but uh, we're here at your home today, so it's the first time that we've actually done something like this face-to-face. Although we've met before, mm. we've never actually had a discussion like this um, uh, sitting across the same table, so that's another first. It is indeed, and your, your long journey today, but, um, and travelling back, back this evening as well, but uh, well worth it, because I think the dynamic works much better when you have the opportunity face-to-face to, to really 
um, get into some deep and interesting areas, which I'm sure we're going to. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Well, yeah, I know that uh, modern technology allows us to converse with people all over the world, and that's very important. It's opened up so many opportunities. Um, you know, with international travel especially wasn't possible, but it's nice to to do. You get there's a different energy face to face, I think, and this is why even in the internet age, I think conferences and, and social gatherings are still important. And of course, as you and I agree, the situation with the archons and things, you've got to make sure that they're not going to be causing problems and issues, which we, we've had in the past. But Well, uh, yeah, I wasn't going to mention it, because although this is a good idea, what we're doing today, it was inspired by the archonic influence, <laughs> basically. We couldn't get any of the technology, the remote technology to work. Uh, you know, so here we are. Um, so, uh, before we dive into today's discussion, for if in the unlikely event that any of the legalised freedom listeners not, are not familiar with your work, Maybe you could just give us a potted bio. Uh, very, very quick biography then. Um, originally from Merseyside um, uh, and very, very proud Scouser, um, very much a football fanatic, loved my Tramia Rovers um, and everything else, which is probably a weird thing when you've got the opportunity to support Everton and Liverpool, but I've always been a masochist probably. Um, Moved away uh, from Wirral, where I used to live in 1973, to read sociology and history at the University of Warwick. Then subsequently did postgraduate at the London School of Economics um, and spent my uh, career as initially as an employee relations person working in various industries, which I particularly enjoyed. The cut and thrust of arguing across a table was is something I enjoy. Um, and then moved on to become a compensation and benefits specialist, uh, working for various companies and organisations uh, across the UK and Europe, including working for companies like uh, London, uh, the, uh, the National Gallery in London, and also a fantastic contract at um, the, uh, the All England Tennis Club, which was absolutely absolutely fascinating. But um, I've always wanted to be a writer ever since I was uh, uh, 12, 13 years of age. And I've always been interested in the um, broader aspects of psychology, sociology, uh, and greater areas of human experience, and particularly consciousness and the mystery of consciousness. And this was the area I wanted to write books on. And in 1999, I wrote my first book, Is There Life After Death? The Extraordinary Science of What Happens When We Die. And uh, six years later, that book was picked up by a publisher, uh, Arcturus, and was published in 2006. And since then, as they say, everything else is the history, because I'm now in the position that... That first book has sold around about forty-five, fifty thousand copies, and my total book sales now, with all the other books I've written, is now probably approaching one hundred and twenty thousand, and that's just in English. Um, my books are in every major European language and a number of minor ones as well, including recently. I'm delighted to say that two of my books have come out in Greek, which is really exciting. But the new book, um, Cheating the Ferryman, is really the culmination of all the other books. It's a drawing together of all the themes from my book on out-of-body experiences to my book on time perception to my books on uh, the egregorials and the idea of entities. But this book pulls it all together uh, and brings together all the science and all the philosophy I've read and all the information I've gleaned from all the contacts I've made worldwide, including some really interesting academics who's doing some fantastic work in these areas. Um, so I'm very proud of this new book, and I think it's very much, I'm hoping that this will be the book that will make my reputation, or not. Yeah, well, it, it's been pitched in some quarters uh, as a sequel to Is There Life After Death, but it's more than that, really. It's not, it's, it's just, it, it, that's its most close correlate, I suppose, in the other books that you've written. But as you said, it's bringing so many different threads together. And 
what's remarkable about it, how it's, it's, it's science heavy, but again, in a way that the non-scientific, I think, minded, or people who just are not particularly well read in science will be able to grasp. So it introduces some very complex, intense, you know, scientific scenarios and scientific research, uh, past, present, and know, points towards the future. But because of the philosophical content, I think, again, it, it brings a, it makes, it brings all of the science into in our human experience, our lived experience. I think it's one of the problems in this area of talking about the nature of reality and what is consciousness and matching that up with the most cutting edge science is finding a, a middle ground to, to make a synthesis of these things because there's philosophy, science and religion, say for example, the traditional ways of, of, of knowing, shall we say, and too often have been set apart. But so much philosophy feeds has fed historically into science and now so much of it has been borne out by science. So many of these ideas mm-hmm. that cutting-edge science is, is bringing to light have philosophical underpinnings um, that were put there when, when we didn't really have the scientific language or the, or the, the evidence of the research um, to put flesh on bones, as it were. So and the, I'd finish by saying that really, page after page, point after point, everything that you've brought together, um, it's all backing evidence is backing up your essential cheating the frame and hypothesis so it's i really want to see how people are going to refute this so do i and it's one of the things that i i very much work upon the principle of the 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 statement of uh, an, uh in 1975 of um uh, of, uh an italian skeptic called marcello truzzi and Marcello Truzzi said, in effect, uh, exceptional claims need exceptional proofs. And I know that people will know that as being the Carl Sagan statement. But in fact, it was Marcello Truzzi that did it first. And Sagan became famous because of it. Because for me, that is the, the ultimate reasoning, is that if you are going to be making extraordinary statements about the nature of reality and the interface between consciousness and external reality, you have to really dig into the information. You need to present the information. Now, one of the things that I really need to clarify here is people ask me regularly, do I believe in the cheating the ferryman hypothesis? And we'll get into what that means in a second. But it's not a question of believing um, in that I didn't, most writers in this field have a bee in their bonnet. They have a belief and then they back back support it. They then go and research information that will give them the the support. Whereas it was quite the opposite with me with cheating the ferryman. Cheating the ferryman was a hypothesis I came upon because of what the science was telling me. In other words, you know, there were certain things I was discovering about near-death experiences, the neurological aspects of near-death experiences, that I started to think, well, what does this generally mean? And I'd go off and I'd research something else. I've used the analogy many times. I felt like I was Frederick Schliemann um, excavating Troy. I was digging, digging and digging. And as I dug, I found different levels and different links. And I just followed my nose as to which direction to go. And at the end of it, I ended up with the cheating the ferryman hypothesis back in 2006. However, I felt at that stage, my knowledge of science, although it was okay, it wasn't as in-depth as I would like it to be. And this book is my approach of going back. And as you say, you know, it's not a sequel to it's It's a fleshing out there's a framework which is in is their life after death but the fleshed out full body is the new book is their life after uh, is cheating the ferryman 
Yes, and of course, you're saying that in the, in the past, <clears throat> maybe your you know, scientific knowledge wasn't what it could be. You're speaking as a non-scientist. Why would it be? I'm not a scientist either. And But that's something, again, I was, when I mentioned the, the comment about see, seeing who would seek to refute uh, you know, your latest work, um, you have been you know, doing something in the interim of series, and you can see this through subsequent books, but this is so um, detailed scientifically, and yet, as I mentioned, I think it's going to be very palatable for the non-scientific audience, and I think that you've quite rightly, as anybody would, putting forward a hypothesis, if someone said, well, what about this, and what about this, and even in the, you know, in the most constructive way, I think that's you've been doing in this one, saying, okay, let's, okay, that isn't fully expanded, that concept, that idea, let's do that now, you know, because those who've been uh, interested in these concepts, but have been struggling to accept it, you know, because our, our society in the West is so scientifically minded and so mm. rationalist and so materialist, you've had to then say, okay, well, let's forget about leaps of the imagination then, have this as you know, point by point by point and uh, and also I like the fact that you've, you've have so many so much material from scientists who are considered mainstream as well mm. that's the other thing um, because of course Einstein and the others who came after him and uh, all the developments in quantum theory uh, these are eminent people I, you know Einstein's a household name but many of these other people who came after eminent people but still they managed to get marginalized when the, the implications of their research were explored so I think that I think you were like a lot of non-scientists very much excited by the implications mm. uh, and other people would get excited but then people would try and say well where's the evidence and so that's what you've done and say well actually you know what I, I wasn't exploring these implications just off the top of my head these ideas come from somewhere you know and mm. more than ever we have here's a long history of you know 100 years of science and more than ever whether it's the work at CERN or whatever it happens to be or whatever NASA are doing, all of these things are touching upon in some way this idea that there's more to reality than five senses and three dimensions, you know. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? A lot of the famous scientists that I, I quote in the book are less known um, in terms of the general public. But, for instance, it's a little-known fact that um, the, the great Austrian um, uh, scientist Wolfgang Pauli who was the guy that came up with Pauli's exclusion principle, which is a central part of quantum mechanics, towards he had a whole series of extraordinary events take place in his life and synchronicities, where he became so intrigued by synchronicities and a particular number, which I think was 319, I think. I may be wrong on that quotation, but there was a particular number he was fascinated in. And he worked then with, with, uh, with, uh, with Carl Gustav Jung on synchronicity and wrote a, a book with him. Now, the thing is with Pauli, you know, he, this preoccupation with this number, uh, he discovered at the end of his life exactly what the significance of the number was. And when he was dying, it was the room he was in, in the sanatorium where he died. Now, to me, that is extraordinary you know this is a great brain and of course the most modern scientists are in denial that people like Wolfgang Pauli people like Max Planck Einstein himself were in effect looking at the philosophical implications of the discoveries they were making mm -hmm. and you never hear that you all you ever hear my Erwin Schrödinger wrote an incredible book called what is life which people aren't aware of where he became really intrigued by the the Vedantist elements of a lot of the work he was doing so a lot of these guys when they when they work so closely into quantum mechanics and quantum physics they become philosophers 
and they start to come to a similar viewpoint to what you and I have. You know, that there is far more to this reality than is dreamt of in, in, your, in your philosophy, Horatio. You know, and it is, it is extraordinary the more you dig into it and the more your brain gets blown by the discoveries they're making at the moment. It's a very exciting period of time. Yeah, well, they do say that, uh, you know, whether you pursue a spiritual path or a scientific path, but it all kind of ends up um, in, in, in a mystery. Really, at the end of the day, you know, science is all about you know, the, having the final answer. Um, but there isn't one. There can't be one, in my opinion, mm. um, in, in this world. You know, the sort of the aforementioned 3D, five-sense reality that you and I are sharing now. What does the final answer look like anyway? That's just a, that's a materialistic kind of... Well it's, it's, well, it's the great question, isn't it? There's a line, um, I think it was a philosopher that came up with it, but uh, it was an, an Australian band, because we're both into music. It was an Australian band called The Little River Band, who had a song, and one of the lyrics is, you know, there's many paths up the mountain, but the view from the top is still the same. And it's so true, you know, we're all... We're all thrown in the book. I, I, I discuss the work of a lot of philosophers. Martin Heidegger is one of the philosophers I focus in on. And, and Heidegger has this concept of thrownness. And what he means by this is that we're thrown into this life. We don't choose to be born. We just find ourselves here. And we are in total confusion because we're trying to make sense of this sensory world that's been imposed upon us. And we, we have only 70, 80 years, if we're lucky, to try and come to terms with the mystery of the fact that I am a sentience that didn't exist for billions of years. I'm a sentient something perceiving something for an infinitesimally relative small amount of time. And will technically, according to the modern materialist reductionist model, disappear and not exist again for billions of years. And that just... You know, it just seems so irrational. Now, to argue that the universe is mindless and there's no point to it. Well, for instance, think about the idea if we destroy ourselves in nuclear war and planet Earth is the only planet in all the tens of billions of galaxies around us and we just wipe out life and sentience and consciousness and that's it. It will never happen again. That's awe-inspiring. And the, the photographs coming from the James Webb Telescope at the moment are incredible. And it's making you realise that this we are at the first steps of even beginning to understand what is going on. But we, in our hubris and our feeling that our science is, is wonderful, is we feel we understand it. And I'm reminded here, and in my books I've quoted this, in, I think it was 1895... Uh, Mitchelson, the Mitchelson-Morley experiment was opening up um, a new section of the University of Chicago, one of the science rooms in there. And he made this speech and he pointed out that, you know, we understand virtually everything there is to know about science. We know it all. Our model works and it's incredible. And he said there's only two or three dark clouds that are the things that we, and once we know them, we'll know everything. And of course, what then happened was the dark clouds were the... Um, the uh, electromagnetic catastrophe, uh, the ultraviolet catastrophe, which was to do with how waves function and how things get hot and keep heat. And they didn't understand how that worked. And then in December 19, uh, 1900, Max Planck stood up at, uh, at Berlin and came up with his theory of quanta. And suddenly we found that energy not being continual came in little chunks or quanta. 
And suddenly everything changed. Suddenly the whole model had changed. Then Einstein in his, his Annus Mirabilis, where he did three papers, he explained something called the photoelectric effect. All these things, without going into technical detail, completely changed the science that, that Mitch, Mitchelson was talking about. And we had a whole new world. But the problem is that the vast majority of people, and probably the vast majority of people listening to this podcast, are stuck in the science of the 1890s. You know, they're 125 years out of date, and that's what they think the world is made of. And it's not. And that's why I write what I do. Yeah, it was that laughable... Uh, but looking back now, that uh, quote from Lord Kelvin, or you know, the, the expression of belief from Lord Kelvin about, you know, we're almost there in terms of explaining uh, life, the universe, and everything. Just a few, you know, we basically got all the main facts, just a bit of tidying up to do, and it just looks so ludicrous now. Uh, your comment, I like the way you framed it about our our lifespan, the human lifespan, as it appears to be to us, and, and that short number, you know, three score years and ten, and as mentioned in the Bible, it's really not much more than that even now. In fact, there's some evidence that human lifespans are decreasing due to lifestyles. But <laughs> one thing that I always hope that in people will come away from in certain of the legalized freedom shows is a sense of urgency. I don't mean panic, mm, yeah. <laughs> but a sense of urgency about what, what is it that I want to do while I'm here? Yeah. And is it shopping and watching television? If it, that genuinely is, knock yourself out. But, you know, we have now more opportunities than ever to like waste our lives really it depends on how you view that word and we now have something here in the UK called Gogglebox which is a television program that you watch and the program consists of people watching television (laughs) (laughs) and then some of those shows that they're probably the shows they're watching sometimes involve people watching television so you know it's like one of those infinite Infinite regrets which is (laughs) absolutely preposterous but to turn to talk a little bit about concepts of you know life after death or, you know, life before life, whatever it happens to be, just the idea that there's something before what you and I are experiencing now and something after, whatever that happens to be. And I realise when I say before and after, I'm introducing time into the mm, equation, but yes. let's just stick with that for now. Um, there's kind of four scenarios that you set out early in the book in terms of like what happens when we die. And really, the, the first three are certainly the conventional um, ideas about what, you know, what people tend to believe, usually one of them mm. about what happens uh, and then you introduce of course another possibility which to some people seems you know just out there and sounds you know it sounds religious in a different way that the actual religious explanation does uh, to non-religious people and kind of the same works, you know it's kind of it, it satisfies neither religious nor scientific people it seems but actually mm. What I think it represents is, a, as I mentioned earlier, a synthesis. So are we able to just briefly yeah, run sure. through it? Just for people who are wondering, you know, just to give them a framework to hang all this on. Yeah, I think, it's, it's, I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head there, that um, it either alienates the religious people and the believers and the scientists, in which case I end up being th- people throwing bricks at me from both sides, or it's an amalgamation. That's always been my approach is to try and find a synthesis whereby spiritual beliefs and scientific beliefs can come together. Because, you know, if the universe is far more complex, the spiritual aspect is just an aspect that we don't fully understand. But for me, what I've always been fascinated by and what Cheating the Ferryman does for me, and again, do I believe it's true? I don't know. I genuinely don't know. But it resonates for me because it is reinforced by my own life experiences and indeed the experiences of a lot of other people. And basically what Cheating the Ferryman proposes and the science of which is what is the main theme of the book is that at the point of death, 
at the point of death, not when you are dead, and this is an important point, this all happens before you die, is that something peculiar happens in the brain. Now, this could be facilitated by the release of endogenous, that is internally generated dimethyltryptamine. It could be brought about by what's known as the glutamate flood. There could be various other things. But what tends to happen is that, and we know this from near-death experience reports, um, there are something called the Grayson traits, which are, I think, eight or nine typologies that medical people use when somebody reports a near-death experience. So it includes these. And one of them is the concept of a feeling that you're falling out of time. The time is suddenly spreading and is getting wider and greater. Right. And of course, many of you will have had that experience where you've had an accident, you've been in a car crash, you've been given bad news or you're in an altered state of consciousness state. But suddenly you realize that time is not what it seems. It's elastic and it can stretch. And of course, that is supported by the science because we know that uh, time and space are just elements of the same thing. It's what Einstein discovered in, 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 in the, the early part of the 20th century. So there's nothing extreme or strange I'm talking about here. And you all know from your experiences that this happens. So imagine the scenario, you start to die, but your, your perception of time changes. So if somebody's watching you die and they're in normal time and you're outside of time, if you quickly think about it, it means that very, very quickly you are existing in totally different worldviews. You know, if your seconds are taking hours to pass by, but the person watching you die, their second takes a second, they will see you die. But if you're, if you apply Zeno's paradox, the idea that every, every piece of time, the next second is twice as long as the second before, you'll quickly realize that you'll never get to the point of death. So you're living in smaller and smaller pieces of time. Now the question then has to be as to, well, what, what are you going to do with all this time? Now, one of the other characteristics of near-death experience is something called a panoramic life review. Now, this has again been reported throughout history. The people turn around when they feel they're going to die or they're in a situation they're dying. And for instance, the work of Albert Heim, who was Einstein's math, maths teacher. He was an alpine climber and he on two or three of occasions had actually fallen and, and thought he was going to die. And on each occasion, he had what he called a panoramic life review, where he was catapulted back into his past and started, a, started living a, an experience from his past in real time, as far as he was concerned in the split second he was falling. People have reported subsequently, and again, I have in the book lots of examples of this, where they literally live their whole life, live a whole life in that split second. Now, what is going on here? What if that in a near-death experience is qualitatively different to what happens in a real death experience? Because I'd argue that what is taking place there is it's a pre-run. The brain thinks you're going to die, so it starts the, 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 the prior to death events of your past life review, but it realizes you're not going to die. So it met metaphorically fast forwards, because that's what people say, my life flashed before my eyes. Now, again, in the book, which I didn't do in cheating in the first book, is that I've got the science of this. There's been recent discoveries made in terms of um, diet, people who are dying that was happened a few months ago, where a guy accidentally died while he was being involved in an fMRI scan. And what did they find? At the point he was dying, suddenly his brain activity went huge, massive, the brain lit up everywhere. That was him starting his past life review. They found it with rats. There are lots of evidence now for this. So 
you start dying, you, the time passes out, and what you do is then, you're catapulted back to the start of your, your life. You'll be born again, literally. And you start to relive your life again in a three-dimensional surround sound virtual reality version of your life, a recording of your life if you want. Now, what I then argue is at the point of death, consciousness splits into two. It splits into what I call the Edelon and the Daemon. The Edelon is the everyday consciousness. We are Edelons. We, we live within the near time. But the Daemon is a part of you that is the real you, the you that lives outside of time, lives in orthogonal time. And when you first die on your very first instance of going through the dying process, the daemon suddenly realizes it exists. It's never known itself as a, a dual being before. And it starts to relive your life, looking at it through your eyes. It can't control you. It can't control your movements, particularly. Which, if you think about it, is exactly the same as a third-person role-playing game. You switch on the game, you start, and on screen there's a little sprite. I use always use the analogy of Lara Croft. Lara Croft, and she runs down a corridor, goes into a room, gets eaten by a monster. She's dead. The game player, however, is not dead. The game player is able to start the game again with a new life, a new Lara Croft, a new Edelon. And I believe this is what happens in life. What happens is that we literally live this life over and over again. But important, not the same life. Remember in the movie Groundhog Day, Connors does not live the same day every day. Every day is different for him because he changes how the day goes from the memories he's had of previous days. And every time he lives the life, he's like a daemon that's living in, the, in an Edelon's body. And I argue that this is what happens. We live our lives in this time after time scenario where all the avenues are open for all the alternatives, for all the decisions. But what is of great importance here is also you are affected by all the decisions made by your ancestors. Your parents, Greg, could have decided to emigrate to Canada. You'd have been a different Greg growing up in Edmonton. I could have been brought up in, in Tasmania. My parents were about to go to Tasmania. My, my grandmother was ill. They didn't go. But there'll be a version of me or a life out there that does that. Now, people will turn around and say, well, where's the science of this? And I always say, just read Stephen Hawking's last paper. It was a, a paper he wrote with a guy called Thomas Hertog of CERN, and it's called The Top-Down Hypothesis of Quantum Physics. And in this, Stephen Hawking, not some new age wacko, turned around and said at the first moments of the, the Big Bang, everything that can ever happen is encoded within the universal field of information. So in which case, the universe is much bigger than we can ever imagine. It can accommodate all scenarios. But if the universe exists and the Big Bang and we go back and we have another Big Bang and another Big Bang, this is, makes sense. We live within an infinity. So within an infinity, there can be an infinity of decisions and paths that can be followed. And in the book, what I do is attempt to do a lot of the science that supports this hypothesis. And believe me, it works. Yeah, <clears throat> listeners are just going to have to get the book because although you've given quite detailed sketch there, it really is only just that. There is so much to get into, but the, you know, the, the supporting evidence is there. You mentioned Groundhog Day, but do you think that um, if some of what you've, you're setting out um, proves to be the case, that obviously it would be difficult to knowingly live 
the same life or even a different mm-hmm. life as the same person again because that would be I know there's a story that you relate about someone um, I don't know if it's a fictional account the life of Ivan Asokin yeah, by you know, uh, Peter Ospensky given a second chance to maybe live better and ends up making the same mistakes mm-hmm. I've often thought about this um, not that I'm, I don't think just life's too short for regrets but I've often thought um, especially in terms of some of the scenarios that you lay out when I discovered these ideas, I thought, well, what would it be like to suddenly find yourself being 20 again? But, but finding yourself in the same place with the same people that you were, knowing what had happened, mm. knowing what your future could be. Say, well, I took these steps, I took these actions, that the following things happened. I'm back here again. First of all, the whole thing would be such a mindfuck. How <laughs> on earth would you cope with dealing with that? But let's just say you thought, whoa, I don't what's going on here? Yeah. Uh, I'd say I'm back at university. Let's worry about what's going on later. Oh, I know this. I know that. You know, 10 years from now, that happened. That wasn't good. Um, 15 years from now, that happened. That was great. And then, but it, depending on the nature of, of reality and how that works, you know, even if you were knowingly living that life, what other factors might come into play, I wonder, you know, because I don't know in, in, in your uh, scenario whether there, there there is room for that. I know there were... were I'm postulating something that apparently doesn't happen. We don't know when we relive these things. But do you think that those possibilities, the possibility that that is happening ever leaks in somehow? I'm thinking yeah. about, for me, deja vu has always felt to me like um, not this life. It's felt like it's coming from somewhere else, if you follow. Mm. It's not like going to a location and thinking, wow, this is familiar. And then somebody said, don't you remember you came here as a boy? And you went, ah, maybe that's why I remember it. The powerful deja vus that I've had, not very common, but when they do happen, they really do stop me in my tracks and they feel like they're from somewhere else. Mm. They don't feel like it's from this life. So I don't know if you feel that oh, yeah. this, this realisation can leak into our reality. T- totally. What I, um, in my, one of my previous books, Opening the Doors of Perception, this is exactly the theme I pursue. I mean, one of the things, again, I need to stress is that really to get the full picture and the full power of the cheating the ferryman hypothesis, you really need to read all my books because each book, like as we were talking earlier on before we started this conversation, um, was about my book, uh, The Labyrinth of Time. And of course, that discusses about time in detail. Um, and all my books touch upon various aspects of this. Now, it's, it, it, I, I find it intriguing. You mention about the idea of knowing what was going to happen next? Because a few years ago, I, I chatted with uh, Gar- uh, Danny Rubin, who was the guy that wrote Groundhog Day, and Danny explained to me how he came up with the idea of Groundhog Day. And him and his girlfriend were watching a t- watching a movie, and he thought, "Isn't it interesting that the actors know what's about to happen next?" And from then he spun on, and he thought, "Well, what would you do if you knew what was going to happen next?" Well, you'd manipulate the environment to get what you want, and of course, that's what Connors does. You know, he, he, he tries to bed the girl. He teaches himself foreign languages. He does all these things. All initially just to bed the girl, really, doesn't he? And then he realises this is not what he wants. So he's running around the town trying to save people. So it's very much a, a development over multiple lives of you becoming a better person. But going back to the idea of what would you do if you knew? Well, this is the interesting, art, this is the interesting point of view that um, is taken by uh, Peter Ospensky in his book, the life of Ivan, the strange life of Ivan Osokin. And he, he, he argues that a young man gets the opportunity of going back and living the last 10 years of his life because he's just lost his girlfriend. And he wants to make sure that this time around he doesn't lose her. So he goes back 
having known what he did last time. And as he said, what he does, he makes the same mistakes. Now, what um, Ospensky considered these people, he called them bite people, B-Y-T. And they're people that seem to cannot break out of the same life, however much they know and however much their knowledge is. But to me, it's more subtle than that. It's the daemon and the daemon's ability to communicate with you while you're in the simulation or what I call the instantation. Because I argue that everything that we're living within is is holographic reproduction. It's, it's holographically based. And again, I do the science in the book of holography and we can come into that later if we wish. But so the idea is the daemon tries to communicate with you. And it depends on how your channels of communication are open as to how effective your daemon can be. Because the daemon obviously knows what it wants to do with your life from all the memories it's had. But it's how it talks to you. Can it speak to you in dreams? Can it can it speak to you in precognitions? Can it message you by moving your body? Because I have evidence that the daemon, which is tends to be located in the non-dominant hemisphere, if you're right-handed, the daemon can sometimes move your left hand to do things, to make you do actions. And I argue that most neurotypicals are doors of perception, our communication channels with the daemon are closed. So the daemon, however much it shouts at you, it can't make you do things. It can only try and give you inklings and nuances. You know, you meet somebody and you think something not right about this person. If your doors of perception are slightly more open, as they are with me, with my with my classic migraine, then the daemon can, can talk to you in a little bit more. It can communicate more. It can give you recognitions it can do these things then when you move further along what i call the huxleyan spectrum you move into temporal lobe epilepsy then the doors of the perception are the doors of perception are sufficiently open to allow the communication channels to open with the daemon that concludes part one of our interview part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at legalizefreedom.com legalizefreedom.com <laughs>